Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. We'll start off on this program with Edgar Allan Poe and his poem Alone, read by the late iconic British actor Basil Rathbone. From childhood's hour I have not been as others were. I have not seen as others saw. I could not bring my passions from a common spring. From the same source I have not taken my sorrow. I could not awaken my heart to joy at the same tone. And all I loved, I loved alone. Then in my childhood, in the dawn of a most stormy life, was drawn from every depth of good and ill, the mystery which binds me still. From the torrent or the fountain, from the red cliff of the mountain, from the sun that round me rolled in its autumn tint of gold, from the lightning in the sky as it passed me flying by, from the thunder and the storm and the cloud, it took the form when the rest of heaven was blue of a demon in my view. And Poe wrote alone upon the death of his foster mother, Frances Allen, but left unpublished until half a century after his own death. And South African-born Basil Rathbone's 130th birthday was commemorated earlier this year in June. And speaking of South Africa, the Arts Express journeys next to the Toronto Film Festival for South Africa at Toronto and the premiere of the dramatic feature, The Umbrella Men, a satirical Cape Town crime spree as local musicians lock horns with an unscrupulous bank scheming to take over their local nightclub, long-standing spiritual home to their whole community, with music composed by jazz musician Kyle Shepard and directed by filmmaker John Barker. The Umbrella Men is surrounded by a little-known history playing out during the original one-day yearly carnival granted to slaves back then and originating at that time when a U.S. slave ship stopped by. Barker phones into the show from South Africa to explain as the Umbrella Men opens at Toronto, along with What's Going Down in South Africa film, with a passionate new anti-colonialist freedom of expression and both on and off screen emerging. Dit zal Gersman Adams zijn dertigste jaar geweest als leer van die umbrella. Dat is mijn kastgoed, Dad. Zij rouwen me zang. How long are you staying, man? I made it back now, man. We're two weeks away from the carnival. Stay for that at least, man. We're an umbrella man, bro. No, no, what you tell? I don't want this. This is your place now. That's what your father wanted. And I know he had good reason. Let me take the Kuma Club off your hands. The Plekos, man, it's falling apart. You see, I want to revive it, make it shine. How much does the club owe? About a million before taxes. What? Are they supposed to pay back a million rand? Uh, you have several options. Me? Yes, you. Thank you for taking the club. It's the Kuma. It's on TV. It's the minstrels. All down the drain. The holes of the bank vault is 13 centimeters thick. The carnival is upon us. What are you planning at my band? This thing better work like clockwork. We don't have a plan B. You must be missing an angel. You brought the gun in here. Because I've already got him a pizza. It's dark down here. Hello, John Barker. Cool, Prairie. Thank you, man. Nice to meet you. And welcome from South Africa to the show. 
Cool, man. Thank you for having me on the show. Really cool. Cool. <laughs> Please talk about the setting of this film in Cape Town during a holiday known as the Second New Year and quoted at the beginning of the film as rooted in the slave history of Cape Town when slaves were only allowed a single day of work off a year. Yes. So there's a, there's a weird link to, to, to the United States with, with this carnival because around the early 1800s, uh, an American ship arrived in Cape Town and obviously all the white sailors, and they put blackface on and dressed as minstrels and, and somehow must have entertained the locals somehow in, in Cape Town. And when the black slaves were emancipated in the 1840s, they took to the streets uh, dressed as minstrels, so obviously using the inverse and, and, and obviously you know, painting their faces white. But, so it stretches back that many years um, because of that, that visit uh, from those sailors. And they kept that going all through apartheid, even when apartheid started, and we we're pretty much back to, to a form of slavery. The minstrels, uh, they call themselves the Klopsa, which is Afrikaans' name for minstrels. They continue to parade every year um, as, as minstrels as part of their celebrations. And the other terrible colonial uh, thing that happened, what the colonials did, is that they, they obviously they didn't want their slaves to be on holiday on the 1st of January, on their New Year. So they, they, they wouldn't allow the, the, the slaves to have the 1st of January off. They would only give them the 2nd of January. So that's why it's called the, the 2nd of January. And in Afrikaans, it's called the Twitter Nivayar which is a Dutch uh, and, um, translation of the 2nd of January. And why did you choose this particular holiday to be the center of your story? Because it's, it's rooted in so much history uh, in slavery and, and about freedom. Uh, it's also it's a, it's been going for a long time. It's one of the oldest street carnivals in the world, apparently. Uh, and I, I love the, the, the heist and caper genre. So I wanted to, I was actually traveling with my film Bunny Child, which, which I made many years ago. And every time I, I kind of went to a festival or something, especially in the States, people would go, oh my God, I didn't know you had music festivals in South Africa. Mm. And I was like, oh, we got a lot of things in South Africa. So I kind of looked at our history and saw the, and the minstrels and thought I would, um, would create a genre film and use the minstrels as a backdrop because it's so South African, um, very iconic and has history and has its own, um, you know, it has its own language, its own sense of humour. That community is very, um, is very unique to Cape Town, and the language that they speak is, is a bit of Afrikaans and a bit of Dutch and German, and so it's just a fantastic community to to highlight to put in the film. How would you say your film is specifically South African politically and culturally? Yes, I think it is. It is very specific to to the community, and and I, you know, one of the things is that we knew that. You know, I had to be authentic to that community. And uh, at some stage, I, we kind of realized that there would be some comedy uh, that would be lost and some narrative, small beats that would be lost by an international audience. Um, but we kind of hoped that the audiences that were watching this film would, would fill in the gaps and would recognize these characters as, as part of characters that, that, that they see every day, that you might see in New York or... You know, you understand the the the, the basic layers of a, of any kind of community. So, we had to make it authentic. We had to be very specifically South African. It was very important for me and the and the filmmakers to to create original music. So we created 25 original uh, uh, tracks, and then Carl Shepard, who's a he's a fantastic um, composer, scored scored a lot of the film. Um, so yes, it, it is very specific to South Africa. It is very culturally specific, but we hope that it does translate uh, across to international audiences. Now, The Umbrella Men has been critically praised for, quote, capturing a marginalized and often misinterpreted culture. What can you say about that? Yes, it's very true. It's, it's, it's quite a strange thing in South Africa that that, that community, for some reason, the, the only films that have ever really featured about um, the Cape Malay people is often uh, quite heavy films about about gangsters. There's an element of that community, like there is in any community, um, of gangsterism. And for some reason, filmmakers have chosen to highlight that part of the community when there's so many other beautiful um, parts uh, of that community that that you could make 
you can make thousands of films all the time. So I'm not sure why everyone's gone for, for the gangster the films, but, but it feels like everything that's been set in that community is either in prison or, or, or has very heavy themes. And regarding references to apartheid in the film, a preference is expressed for stealing apartheid period diamonds instead of cash. Please talk about that inclusion. I have tried to include as much about apartheid as possible. Well, you know, in this country, a lot of the uh, there were a lot of colonial people, white people, who became very rich through through mining diamonds, gold, etc., and at the expense of the the slaves or the black community, who were the actual people who physically had to dig it out of the earth. So the reference in that uh, in that regard was that Jacques was saying, as if Jerome, the lead, was saying, "Well, listen, our forefathers died and suffered and worked their themselves to, the, to the, their fingers to the bone to get out these diamonds and this gold from, from our land. And we haven't ever seen anything um, from that. We've been denied all these things. So now it's our chance to take what our forefathers died for. Um, and, and they took it in the Robin Hood kind of way that they were just taking what they owed for the debt to the man of the bank. And how would you say your film is expressive, not only of South African filmmaking today, but a current wave of new rebellious filmmaking in Africa in general. Yes, uh, I, I, I hope so. I think that um, South Africans, especially due to, to a lot of streamers, uh, the arrival of streamers like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and, and um, uh, Disney, etc., are giving a voice to, to many filmmakers who previously weren't exposed uh, to filmmaking. They've, they've kind of um, created so many amazing, beautiful young filmmakers that are coming out. Uh, a lot of a lot of female directors and producers who are suddenly now have have a strong film under their belt and are working on second and third features. So I'm not sure about what's happening in the rest of Africa, and I know that the streamers are, are putting money into into Nigeria, etc. But but specifically here at this at this time, we we very very grateful for for all the filmmakers. Um, the films that are being made. And I think they are representing a current contemporary Africa as opposed to like the, the, the stuff we touched on just now about about that community is that people tended to always make very kind of depressing films on a, a certain angle of, and take a certain viewpoint on a community. Now I feel like people from that community, um, black filmmakers especially, are making films about their stories as opposed to white directors uh, making films about a community they don't really know a lot about. And I wanted to ask you, in terms of a new emerging anti-colonial spirit in Africa, what are your thoughts about a new proud emerging sense of pride and spirit across the continent and your foreign minister telling the U.S. Secretary of State, Blinken, not to tell South Africa what to do, as well as a U.N. vote that just happened, pushing the world to denounce Russia, not a single African country voted for it. Yes, um, I believe that I believe that filmmakers and um, and Africans to, are, are finally standing up and saying that um, you know that that we need to tell our stories, especially as, as filmmakers. Um, and, and I and I believe that it it is that it is our time now to to get our kind of films out into the world. And um, I guess we just. Yeah, I, I guess all those sentiments are, are true. Like, I think that Africa has, you know, for so long we've been ruled by, by colonialists, and I think it's it's time that we we get rid of those shackles and that we, you know, create our own work and create our own worth and have respect for for what we've achieved, as opposed to looking overseas the whole time for um, for validation of whatever. You know, I think it's I think we've got so much going for us here on the continent. Um, and, and as a people, um, so rich in so many different cultures um, and, and our diversity. And I think that's what makes Africa so so incredibly powerful, I think, um, going forward. I can't wait to see the films that are coming out of, uh, out of Africa. Because I think we're finally feeling like we have the confidence to, to believe in, our, in ourselves, in our own worth. And any last word on bringing your movie to the Toronto Film Festival? Well, I tell you, you know, it's it's uh, it really is when you when you work so hard on a project, and, and we've been working on this for about 15 years, um, and you, you, I kept telling myself that it was 
the project was worthwhile doing it. But, you know, there's so many moments where you have doubt where you're going, what is the point? Like, no one else wants to make this film. So so few people, it's, so, it's crazy, so few people saw the value in, 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 like, telling a story set in this community. I think because everyone has this preconceived idea that that community is like gangsters, you know, and it's so far from the truth. So we just, I just kept going. And um, and for us to, to, to get into a big festival, the biggest festival in my, in my eyes um, around the, in the world, and to show the film to, to an international audience uh, is just like a dream come true. You can't believe how, how long I wished for and the filmmakers wished that we would get something like this. So it's an absolute honor and a pleasure. And um, it's just great speaking to you, and I can't wait for people to see the film because... I feel so passionate about the community and about South Africa as a whole. I just love the idea of positive stories and cool contemporary stories. You know, finding finding a, an audience, an international audience, is is fantastic. Okay, thank you so much, John Barker. We're calling into the show, and the best of luck with the Umbrella Men at the Toronto Film Festival. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's an absolute pleasure. Okay, bye. Yeah, bye. And more information about the Umbrella Men at the Toronto Film Festival is online at TIFF.net. And next on Arts Express, in the Bond movie Tomorrow Never Dies, a suggestion that the U.S. did not win the Vietnam War was cut out, as the CIA placed undercover agents in major studios where they monitored left-wing screenwriters and directors. Expensive toys and the Hollywood Industrial Complex, a look at the history of what the CIA and Pentagon decides what you will see or not. Watch any big-budget war movie or take in a spy thriller, and you could walk away not knowing just how much your movie experience was shaped by the Pentagon or CIA. However, a trove of official documents obtained under U.S. Freedom of Information laws and published detail the dealings between filmmakers and intelligence officials at Langley, Virginia, the CIA headquarters. Probably the best known are Zero Dark Thirty and Argo, uh, but they've also assisted the television show Homeland. How do we deal with homegrown violent jihadists? They've also assisted Alias. You work for the very enemy you thought you were fighting. 24. Tell me where the device is! A CBS series called The Agency. Then he slit his throat. They assisted a film called The Sum of All Fears, starring Ben Affleck. Captain. Jack Ryan, CIA. Charlie Wilson's War is a, is, a, is a really good example where they maintain the idea that, oh, you know, are we really doing the right thing by arming the Mujahideen, the forerunners of the Al-Qaeda terrorist organization in Afghanistan in the 1980s? They kind of question that in a kind of jokey way. Like the last caption in the in the film, Charlie Wilson's War, is something like, um, oh, we came, we saw, but then we mucked up the end game or some joke, you know. It's like, no, that's not what you did, actually. And you know it because the original script and the original book that you base this on doesn't say that. You armed terrorists in a really horrific conflict. It's the whole organisation behind it at a systematic level. And that turned Charlie Wilson's War into this you know, saccharine, benign movie. Throughout the 1990s, the CIA worked with Hollywood very specifically on movies that portrayed uh, the CIA as sort of a heroic force protecting America. Most of the movies were based on Tom Clancy books, actually. So you had A Hunt for Red October and that entire franchise. Um, you know, the lead character, Jack Ryan, is this like super heroic figure and he's like constantly you know, taking down bad guys. And saving America, saving the world from various threats, whether it's Islamic terrorism or the IRA or ultimately white supremacists. Between them, the CIA and the US Department of Defense have had varying levels of input, from simply clarifying points for authenticity to actually writing parts of scripts on more than 1,800 movies and TV shows. When it comes to influencing filmmakers, shaping the story, the Pentagon is usually in a stronger negotiating position than the CIA. Because of the hardware at its disposal, it can shut down a movie before a scene is ever shot. 
The Department of Defense is actually a much more powerful player in the entertainment industry for basically financial reasons. The Department of Defense has expensive toys. They have submarines, they have aircraft carriers, they have tanks, and they have the personnel to, to operate each of those things. So if a filmmaker wants to make a war movie, they often will approach the Department of Defense and basically ask to borrow that equipment. And the Department of Defense will say, maybe, but can I see your script? And they will either say, this is great, we love the way that the military is portrayed in this, we will go ahead and collaborate with you, or they may say, we hate the way that we're portrayed and refuse to participate. When the Pentagon does agree to support a film, there can be some scripting strings attached. And the Vietnam War is clearly a sore point. In The Hulk, a reference to a US operation that poisoned Vietnamese farmland was removed. And in the Bond film, Tomorrow Never Dies, a suggestion that the US did not win the war was cut out. In Iron Man, a reference to soldier suicides was removed, again at the Pentagon's insistence. The CIA's presence in Hollywood is harder to detect. It goes back to the early days of the Cold War and was designed to counter a propaganda effort coming out of the Soviet Union. The CIA placed undercover agents in major studios where they monitored left-wing screenwriters and directors. This was at the height of Cold War paranoia, and Hollywood was under the scrutiny of the U.S. Congress. Is investigating alleged communist influence and infiltration in the moving picture industry. The agency started influencing scripts. One senior executive at Paramount Pictures, working covertly for the CIA, described how, to counter what the Soviets were saying about the persecution of African Americans, quote, well-dressed Negroes, unquote, would be planted in certain films. What happens in the 1990s is that the Cold War ends and all of a sudden the CIA is left without a visible, viable enemy to justify its existence. If they were going to continue, they had to do something to improve their public image. And one of the responses to that crisis was to begin to work with Hollywood to convince the American public that, and Congress that they were still worth being an institution. In 1996, the CIA's Entertainment Liaison Office in Hollywood began offering free support to movies that featured the agency. Chase Brandon, an intelligence agent and cousin of actor Tommy Lee Jones, was the CIA's first liaison officer. He's credited as a technical advisor on a host of Hollywood blockbusters, such as The Recruit, starring Al Pacino as a veteran CIA officer. Our failures are known, our successes or not. In reality, Brandon was far more than a mere advisor on the recruit. He helped pitch the film to Disney, that eventually produced and distributed the movie, and was involved in the script writing. The recruit. As another CIA liaison officer put it, Hollywood is the only way the public learns about the agency. Which begs the question, should the public be learning about the CIA from the CIA without even being aware of the agency's role in the production process? These issues became public with the release of one of the biggest CIA Hollywood collaborations to date, Zero Dark Thirty, a film about the search for Osama bin Laden. You really believe this story? Osama bin Laden? The Zero Dark Thirty was a really unusual case, I think, for the CIA in terms of how it works with Hollywood. The CIA gave the director and screenwriter a lot of access to the agency. They bounced a lot of ideas back and forth, and they wanted to really kind of tightly control the narrative that this was putting out. It backfired though because very quickly after the movie came out it was criticized for suggesting that torture somehow had played a role in the information gathering that led to the capture and assassination of Osama bin Laden. Torture and the CIA's use of it, especially after 9-11, were already under investigation when Zero Dark Thirty was released. The Senate Intelligence Committee wrote a letter to the production studio, Sony Pictures. They said, we believe the film is grossly inaccurate and misleading in its suggestion that torture resulted in information that led to the location of Osama bin Laden. Zero Dark Thirty's director, Catherine Bigelow, eventually had to respond to the allegation that her film was making the CIA's case for torture. In an editorial for the Los Angeles Times, she wrote that critics were, quote, confusing depiction with endorsement. 
Torture was, as we all know, employed in the early years of the hunt. That doesn't mean it was the key to finding bin Laden. It means it's a part of the story we couldn't ignore. That's more of a problem with the film industry and the creative industry. Total disinterest in the responsibility of the ideological products that they create. And this is why you can have a very liberal town full of very liberal or even sometimes left-wing celebrities and directors. But actually they create films that are very much in keeping with the American Empire project. The CIA rarely has any kind of public credit that suggests that they had any hand in shaping the narrative of that film. That lack of transparency I find incredibly problematic because it doesn't allow the viewer to be a smart, critical viewer. How about this? Why don't they just have at the beginning of each film, made with the support of the Central Intelligence Agency, let's see how long the practice lasts then. Because it won't. Because people will look at it and say, oh, it's one of those propaganda films. And thank you to the Listening Post and Al Jazeera for that report. And coming up next on the show, does Pete Buttigieg hate old people? Maybe Fox News thinks so. In the Culture Wars episode this week, how Fox News lies for big business. Political analyst and contributor to the show, Jason Unruh, is on the case. Fox News. Now, I don't think I have to make the argument about how Fox News is a dishonest, lying organization. I mean, I think that's fairly well known at this point. And if you want to remain completely uninformed, Fox, choice, Fox News would be the best choice for watching television. Now, being a Canadian, I don't actually get Fox News. However, I did manage to catch a, a website online where you can watch for free. So I saw America Reports with John Roberts and Sandra Smith. Now, they had a piece there about the current shortage of airline pilots in the United States. And this was causing massive delays and then causing, you know, consumer anger, etc. So while discussing this, they naturally quoted Pete Buttigieg, the current Department of Transportation head. Now, they specifically talk about, talked about one particular aspect or one particular plan to deal with the shortage, and that is raise the retirement age, the mandatory retirement age of pilots from 65 to 67. Mm, okay. Well, some people believe that it's a safety issue, including the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, who said this. Listen here. I'm not going to be on board with anything that could compromise safety. The answer is to make sure that we have as many and as good pilots ready to take their place, to have a stronger pipeline. Strengthening the pipeline, though, is a process that's going to take years. I mean, just looking strictly at the safety issue, not the schedule issue, is there a big difference between having a pilot who's 65 oh, sure. years old flying a plane versus 67? Yeah. I mean, people are living longer, they're living better, they're much more active than they used to be at that age. Now, they quoted he, uh, Buttigieg as saying that he thought it would be a bad idea to raise that, citing safety concerns and that it could be very dangerous. And then, of course, the Fox News commentators repeated to essentially say, Pete Buttigieg hates old people because people are living longer these days. They're living higher quality of life. They're, they're being more active into their older age, which uh, kind of isn't true. But let's just say for the argument that it is. And see, the problem here is that that's not exactly what Pete Buttigieg said. Here's what he actually said. I'm told Senator Lindsey Graham is talking with colleagues about potentially raising that retirement age for commercial pilots to 67. Would you support that? Look, these retirement ages are there for a reason, and the reason is safety. I'm not going to be on board with anything that could compromise safety. Now, what's clearly the case is we need to cultivate, train, and support a new generation of qualified pilots. As a matter of fact, uh, just last week, I, I was out with some programs that are helping to cultivate that interest in students and, and support them as they get their hours and get those qualifications. The answer is not to keep uh, the, the baby boomer generation in the cockpit 
cockpit indefinitely? The answer is to make sure that we have as many and as good pilots ready to take their place, to have a stronger pipeline. We're backing that up with FAA programs that support high school and college curriculum uh, to get into aviation. And of course, ultimately, it'll be for the airlines and, and those employers to hire and retain excellent talent. And, you know, this is an issue we're seeing across the aviation sector, across the transportation sector at large, the importance of having competitive pay, great job quality, so that we can bring in and keep the people that are going to be needed to, to power America's transportation sector. As you can see, that's a little bit different from the way Fox News actually portrayed it. What he was talking about was that there is a certain age at which there is cognitive decline. And believe it or not, it is around 65, which is why 65 was chosen. Now, of course, you can be completely sharp into your 70s, but you don't know each individual, like how the drinking age is a particular age when somebody could be more responsible younger or completely irresponsible at twice the age. You just have to draw the line somewhere. What they're not talking about is the fact that there is a shortage. Oh, we should be able to raise the minimum, the maximum, the mandatory retirement age by two years. That way we can have more pilots. Or you can do as Pete Buttigieg suggested is that actually get younger people into the industry to replace the retiring boomers. That's the problem. There aren't enough people going into the industry in order to be able to make up the lack when, when people retire to take to fill those places. And that's the issue. And that's largely because airline pilots have been paid complete garbage. As you recall, Sully, the guy who landed the plane in the Hudson River, had testified that low wages, low safety is what kept people from going into the airline industry. And then those who went in, the, the pilots had to take on extra hours just to be able to get by. It is my personal experience that my decision to remain in the profession I love has come at a great financial cost to me and to my family. My pay has been cut 40%. My pension, like most airline pensions, has been terminated and replaced by a PBGC guarantee worth only pennies of the dollar. Members, I, I attempt to speak accurately and plainly, so please do not think I exaggerate when I say that I do not know a single professional airline pilot who wants his or her children to follow in their footsteps. I am worried that the airline piloting profession will not be able to continue to attract the best and the brightest. The current experience and skills of our country's professional airline pilots come from investments made years ago when we were able to attract the ambitious, talented people who now frequently seek professional careers elsewhere. That past investment was an indispensable element in our commercial aviation infrastructure, vital to safe air travel and our country's economy and security. If we do not sufficiently value the airline piloting profession and future pilots are less experienced and less skilled, it logically follows that we will see negative consequences to the flying public and to our country. So what happened is people stopped going to be pilots because it wasn't paying anything, particularly with somebody with such a high skill and high importance when it comes to safety. So now there's a shortage of people because they don't, didn't want to pay anything. So the wages now went up because there's a shortage. Now there's not enough people, period, coming in to fill those spots. So you see the problem here. It's, it's not the retirement age. It has very little, if nothing, to do with what Buttigieg was actually saying, but the fact that there were such low wages that people didn't go into it. And then there is another issue on top of it, which is the larger context at which Buttigieg was actually talking about. And that is the desire by airline industries to lower the qualifications for people to become airline pilots, which would tremendously be a safety issue. So really, what the airline industry is really complaining about is that they don't have enough pilots and it's keeping the wages too high because we have seen very specifically what they will do to keep those wages low. And that's really what this is about. And that is just a brief example of how Fox News will lie in favor of big business in order to attack people who work a living wage. Reporting from Niagara Falls, Jason Unruh. And we'll go out now on the show with the Arts Express Screening Room.
Delhi the artist has become a prisoner of Delhi the celebrity. To the day he died, he was as he would have wished it to be, a subject of controversy. Salvador Dali and the persistence of memory. And more than meets the eye, immersion in the artist's exploration of the depths of the subconscious mind in his paintings, and with connections to Freud, God, Franco, Hitler, Hitchcock, Disney, 60 Minutes, and what's the point of this picture? And thank you, James Payne, self-described as on a mission to demystify the art world. Good evening. Tonight, we go after the story of an extraordinary personality. He is Salvador Dali, the great surrealist painter who sees the world through surrealist eyes. If you're curious to hear Salvador Dali talk about decadence, death, and immortality, about his surrealist art, his politics, and his existence before he was born, we'll go after those stories in just a moment. important because uh, myself work constantly in the moment of sleep. Every of my best ideas coming through my dreams. Salvador Dali was obsessed with Sigmund Freud and you could say his beginnings were more than a little Freudian. Dali's mother gave birth to her first son in 1901, a child that she named Salvador, who died at 22 months old. Just nine months later, the Salvador we know was born and was given his dead brother's name. Dali was told by his parents that he was the literal reincarnation of his dead brother, a belief he carried into his adult life. Sigmund Freud published Interpretation of Dreams in 1899, in which he put forward the theory that dreams are the key to unlocking the secrets of the unconscious mind. To access his subconscious, Dali would make himself hallucinate. Not with drugs, but rather by using what he called paranoia-critical method. He would take micro-naps during the day. He would lie in a chair holding a heavy key in his right hand, underneath which he placed an upside-down plate on the floor. When he fell into a deep sleep, he dropped the key, and the clang woke him up. In that nanosecond, he would enter a state scientists call hypnagogia, an in-between state where you are just beginning to dream but are still conscious. He would use this method with the persistence of memory, a painting that, although stylistically rooted in realism, transcends the world of reason. The strange, confusing and often disturbing world we visit in our dreams would make Dali a household name. And he would remain so for more than half a century, one of the best-known and most bitterly contested figures in the international art world. In 1938, after years of trying, Dali would finally meet Freud, which he likened to meeting God. Freud was 81, Dali 34. By all accounts, they were totally bewildered by each other, and Dali would later disavow Freud. Great art comes from conflict, and Dadaism and Surrealism were two art movements that developed as a direct result of the horrors of the First World War. A war so brutal and incomprehensible that artists look for unconventional ways to make sense of the world. And their rage drove their artistic creativity. Dadaism, which preceded Surrealism, was more of an anti-art movement. Surrealism was about finding a bridge between the subconscious and reality. The founder of the Surrealist art movement, André Breton, worked at a military hospital in Paris and had been an eyewitness to the horrors of the war. He saw firsthand how mental trauma patients rejected the rational world and inspired by Sigmund Freud, he would seek to liberate the subconscious through art. 
There is no dominant painting style in surrealism, but the public face of it would become Salvador Dali. The mustachioed self-promoter was instantly recognisable, as were his landscapes of melting watches. As a painter, Dali had experimented with lots of styles, amongst others, fauvism, naturalism and cubism. Then in 1926, for the first time, he visited Paris, which was the cultural centre of the world, and began interacting with artists such as Picasso, Magritte and Miró, which led to Dali's first surrealistic works. However, this recently discovered work was produced while he was still a teenager, showing us not only that he was an early surrealist, but that he was also already referring to himself in the third person. Today the art world is unshockable, but Dali's uncensored imagination, his images of sex, blood and excrement, even under the guise of the subconscious, was subversive and scandalous. Dali would be expelled from the Surrealist group in 1934, for amongst other things, his fascination with Hitler, who he once said turned him on. But by this time, he was already a well-known painter, and on his way to becoming a celebrity. The first thing to note is that despite its huge cultural impact, it is quite small, about the size of a sheet of paper. Dali plays with a perception of scale and presents a huge desert landscape with vast depths of field reduced to a shrunken world, as if we are looking down the wrong end of a telescope. In the same way Dali uses scale to subvert our ideas of reality, he does so with extreme photorealism. He painted the unreal world with such realism that no matter how irrational the vision, it is still believable. This is what makes him unique. I am against any kind of message. You are. Against. In 1931, Dali was 27, broke and living in a recently purchased fishing cottage in the town of Port Ligat with his future wife, Gala. Gala would be a divisive figure for the Surrealists and as Dali's fame and fortune grew, she would be constantly at his side, their life a never-ending round of carefully choreographed appearances. While the rocky landscape in the background may look like an ambiguous dreamscape, it is actually inspired by the surroundings at Port Ligat, specifically the coastal cliffs of Cap de Creuse, a peninsula close to the artist's home. The triangular shadow that appears to crawl across the canvas is believed to be cast by Mount Pani, a mountain near the artist's home. This early painting in the Impressionistic style is the view from that mountain's summit. To me, it's almost certain that his use of space was inspired by the earlier images of Giorgio de Chirico, who was, like Dali, a follower of Freud. From the landscape itself, only a few features emerge. One is a dead olive tree growing out of a large square platform. The olive tree, a symbol of peace, is dead. This reflects the uneasy political climate at the time, between the First World War and the unrest leading to the impending Spanish Civil War. Francisco Goya is considered by many scholars to be the basis for modern art, bridging classicism and romanticism. He deeply influenced Salvador Dali in his early years. We can compare the dead olive tree here to Goya's use of the same metaphor in his Disaster of War series about an earlier brutal conflict. The limp corpses on Goya's tree are mirrored in Dali's watches. Dali would reference this image again in a painting he claimed predicted the Spanish Civil War, which also references this Goya image. Dali's technique of transforming objects exemplifies the surrealist belief that mundane things presented in unexpected ways have the power to challenge reason. Metamorphosis is a key concept in the surrealist movement, exemplified by the paradox of Dali's rendering of the hardest and most mechanical of objects, watches, into a soft, flaccid form. Dali's best work exploits the ambiguity of our perceptual process and plays with our own fears, 
by distorting the human body, space, matter and form. The body incapacitated. The object made worthless. The painting was done at a time the revolutionary ideas of Einstein and Freud were changing the way we thought about time and the subconscious. One idea ties the painting to Einstein's theory of relativity, in which the scientist references time dilation, with time not being absolute but relative. Watches are usually a concrete symbol of space and time. Their deterioration in the painting reflects the collapse of human notions of a fixed universal order. When asked, Dali said his true inspiration for the watches was a wheel of camembert cheese he had seen melting in the sun. Yet, in this interview, he contradicts this and in fact had a lifelong obsession with science. The last development of nuclear physics proved that the new conception of space time is completely flexible. He later gave another meaning, that the watches symbolise impotence, and the hands on the watches are the medical scientific sign for male. Only the great people realise sensational achievements is impotent, you know? Right. Napoleon, everybody. We never know with Dali, but if we take the dream interpretation, then the watches, which all show different times, reflect ideas about the passage of time and the relation between actual time and remembered time. One thing is clear, time, like the watches, is fluid. He had already portrayed a melting clock in this earlier painting, and it would become his signature motif. Dali, who knew the importance of branding, would use the melting clocks for his entire career. Perhaps the most confusing element of the scene is the face-like figure, said to be a self-portrait of the artist. A somewhat similar self-portrait appears in an earlier Dali work. In the persistence of memory, the figure appears to be either dead or sleeping, or more obviously, dreaming. Dali studied Hieronymus Bosch, an artist often called the first surrealist, and was heavily influenced by his painting and technique. It is rarely, if ever, pointed out that Dali's portrait is a direct appropriation of Bosch. The positioning of the face could well have been influenced by a rock formation near his home in Port Legat. The swarming ants and insects in Dali's pictures are clear references to death and decay, a reminder of human mortality and impermanence. Insects not only cause death, but they do of course eat the dead. A year before he made this painting, Dali made Un Chien Andalou with Louise Bunuel, which featured his dreams about parasitic ants. In his autobiography, Dali wrote about his childhood experience of being terrified seeing ants eating the decomposing remains of a bat. And when he met Gala, he fantasized about her body covered in ants. The ants are crawling over the only intact pocket watch, as if it were a piece of rotting fruit, rather than a metallic object. We are being asked to question the substance of the watch, and therefore time. The fly on the clock face is a clear symbolic reference to art history. In some historic portraits, the presence of a fly symbolises the transience of human life. Dali, whose life started with the death of his brother, had a preoccupation with his own death. Because the death all time is very close, watch me. And the dead like it catch me. His family was plagued by loss, and when he was 16, Dali's mother, an early supporter of his talents, died. Persistence of memory is about the fluidity of memory, dreams and time. But the melting watches, the dead tree and the parasitic insects all point to Dali's obsession with death and decay. You, are, you fear death. Yes. Death, death is beautiful, but you fear death. Exactly. Dali and Gala spent the three years of the Spanish Civil War in exile in Paris. But when the Germans invaded Paris, they went straight to New York. He turned up on Broadway and in stores on Fifth Avenue. 
He painted portraits of wealthy socialites. He designed for opera and dance and did magazine illustration. Hollywood came calling and he worked first for Alfred Hitchcock and then Walt Disney. He appeared in lucrative adverts and was a chat show and game show regular. Dali love confusion. Dali reached the height of his fame in America, but his critical reception during these years cooled. He was increasingly viewed as a commercial artist, and his work was greeted with tepid enthusiasm and often outright suspicion. Other artists were famous. Picasso was very famous, but the work came first, celebrity second. Dali the artist had become a prisoner of Dali the celebrity. Watch yourself. <laughs> Gala died in 1982 and Dali himself died in 1989 while listening to his favourite record, Tristan and Isolde. To the day he died, he was, as he would have wished it to be, a subject of controversy. But his endless self-promotion grew irritating and his work suffered. He would later upset many people over his friendship with the dictator General Franco. But his exploration of the depths of the subconscious mind in his powerful images tapped into the fantasies, dreams, fears and hallucinations of entire generations. And he should be remembered as a consummate draftsman and as a pioneer of surrealism an artist who made modern art popular and accessible. The persistence of memory is for good reason the most celebrated surrealist canvas ever painted. It really is the work of a crazy genius. Only difference between crazy people and Dali is Dali is not crazy. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.